Hello there and welcome to the podcast. It's John Markar here and I thought I'd just jump in with a very quick but very important message that I wanted to share with you before you delve into this episode of the Driven Chat podcast. This podcast, the Driven Chat podcast, has now come to an end. But don't worry, I'm not going to stop you from listening to this episode or from catching up with the 185 episodes that we've recorded in this format. I just wanted to let you know that if you're looking for our new episodes recorded after December 2023, then you'll need to seek out our new podcast, The Driven Podcast. You can find The Driven Podcast in all the usual podcast platforms, including, chances are, the one that you're listening to this one on right now. So please do enjoy this episode, share it with a friend by all means. But when it's done, don't forget to search for the new podcast, The Driven Podcast, and subscribe to the new format to hear the new stuff. To make life easy, head on over to the Driven website via driven.site. There you will find links through to the new podcast, including links to your preferred podcast platform. And hey, whilst you're there, why not check out everything else we do, including hand-picked automotive news stories, car and bike reviews, video features, and even more. For now, though, I'll let you enjoy this episode. And I will remind you again at the end of the episode, but for the future reference, this message is approximately 1 minute and 30 seconds long. That's six clicks on the 15-second skip button. Enjoy. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, my name is Martin Donnelly, uh, ex from one Team Lewis driver uh, from back in the 90s. I think I'm well known as being one of the, probably the only one to survive one of the biggest accidents in Fun One in modern day. Went on then to run my own team and career for different manufacturers across the uh, the brand uh, in the UK. The Driven Chat podcast in association with Paramex Digital. You dream it, we bring it to life. Find out more at drivenchat.com. Hello and welcome to the latest Driven Chat podcast. My name is John Marker and as you've just heard, this week we are talking to somebody very special. It is Martin Donnelly, racing driver who... Uh, forgive me, Martin, I'm going to say a racing driver that, for all intents and purposes, probably should be dead. And I know that's a, you know, there's, we're going in with a hard-hitting line at first, but um, it's no secret. I think anyone that knows you and your career is going to be aware of a fairly significant crash that I'm mm-hmm. sure we'll probably talk about a little mm-hmm. bit in this, in this episode. Technically, if you ask Sid Watkins, I died three times. Once I should have died at the circuit in Jerez without oxygen for 11 and a half minutes. People say it affected my brain. And then in the Royal London Hospital in Whitechapel, I was given the old jump leads and uh, stand clear because my heart had stopped during wow. various operations. But uh, it's hard to keep a good man down and here I am. <laughs> here you are now. A few years later, still yes. going strong. Also with us in this episode, and I'll set the scene of where we are shortly as well, because this has got to be one of the most glamorous locations we've recorded in so far, is a, a friend of the show, a voice that's appeared a few times, and a face that's appeared a few times on our video feeds on YouTube, Mr. Miles Lacey. Hello, Miles. Hello, John. How are you? I'm very well. 
So we've got a co... Miles, you're coming in as a co-host today due to the fact that you are, I think in your words, best friends with Martin Donnelly. Uh, I think that probably Martin definitely <laughs> said that and not me. <laughs> well, it's very nice to have you here as a, as a co-host for today. And I think this is... Uh, we should have some fun with this conversation. Obviously, we're going to be talking to Martin a lot about his, his career. But you're now working with Martin on a professional capacity in various areas and doing bits and pieces. Uh, but we won't turn on that today because we're going to talk about some cars and motorsport and just general fun and games, which is why we all are here. That we are. Um, John... He WhatsApp me and said, how do you feel about co-hosting the show? <laughs> Don't laugh. <laughs> and I said, why said, the hell not? He and said, how much does it pay? How much does it pay? <laughs> More to the point, the only reason you're calling me is because Amy Shaw's too busy. <laughs> Quite possibly. Uh, no, not at all. Not at all. No. Um, no, I mean it, genuinely. I thought, you know, it, it makes sense. Otherwise, you'd be sat there in the corner listening to a fantastic conversation when you could be chipping in, I'm sure. That's also known as voyeurism, but let's not go down well, that road. Well, that's a yeah, different, different subject altogether. Um, uh, thank you both for inviting me to this very glamorous location. We're in a, in a hotel. Uh, without giving too much away, it's uh, quite purple. Mm. Lenny Henry's an advocate of it. But we're here in a uh, hotel room in Bicester, not far from Oxford, uh, to record this week's podcast, um, which is a, a running theme for Driven and Driven Chat because we've had a number of episodes where we've recorded them in hotel rooms. So this feels strangely As normal. They say needs must. Well, quite, exactly. Yeah, we had aspirations. What was our list? We had aspirations of recording in the BRDC building at Silverstone. It started there. <laughs> I was looking good until the Mercedes F1 team showed up ah. to shake down the cars and we weren't allowed to use the Weirdly, they, they kind of took the biscuit. Is... I, don't, I don't understand why they would be considered a higher priority than us, but here we are. Here we are. Well, indeed. You didn't do the don't you know who I am line. At which was... point they... They grabbed me by the collar. I scored him out of the garage. <laughs> well, but here we are. We've settled on a hotel room in the Premier Inn. Indeed. And, and, and quick, uh, quick shout out to um, Motorsport UK, who was very, very oh, keen yes. to host us. Um, but then uh, it turns out that people actually that have normal jobs go home at six o'clock. Yes, indeed. Uh, yeah. So we said, you know what, that's fine. Thank you. We'll bear that in mind for the future. How do you get those jobs? <laughs> yeah, wouldn't I like to know? Yeah. As we sit here at uh, oh, it's just gone six o'clock, and we're getting st- we're starting our working day. We don't operate on normal hours. <laughs> um, so hotel room it is. Hotel room it is. Well, here we are. Right. Well, that's the uh, the scene setting and the theatre of the mindset for our dear listener. Uh, hopefully, you can picture it all. Now. Martin, where do we start? Because, I mean, an amazing life, an amazing career. You're now known or still known as a, a great figure in the world of motorsports. But I think one of the questions I always like to explore and the questions I like to ask is to try and find out where this all started for you. So do you have a very early childhood memory in or around cars that might have been that light bulb moment to lead you to where you're sat now? Very, very early. The day I was born, uh-huh. my father was a hard-working man. We had a family business to operate in um, vegetable wholesalers, potatoes and vegetables to the local shops and schools around the province of, of Ulster. And back in those days, there was no mobile phone. So my mother went into, into labour and the family business obviously 
worked out whereabouts my father would be during his daily run and they rang this school and that shop and said, look, if Martin arrives, tell him his wife's going to labour and that when he finishes work, not to hang about and get to the hospital. Right. And, uh, of course, he came to the hospital when visiting hours were over because my mum could hear him run up the stairs and he came in with this uh, bouquet of flowers because up the stairs, all the heads been beaten off him up through the steps. <laughs> and he got into the ward and... Uh, he says, my mother, well, she, 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 she said, well, what is it? You know, is it a boy or a girl? She said, just pick me up out of the, the, the recluse himself, the, 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 the cots, if you like, yep, cots. Yep. And says, just undo the, the muslin. So he picked me up and pulled back the muslin. And in my hand was a shark nose uh, Ferrari. And I still have that to this day. It was on my uh, 50th birthday cake last year. Wow. And, uh, you know, that's something that was a toy I was never allowed to play with when I was a youngster back in my days in Belfast. So that, from that day, was my destiny, I suppose. Wow. And where did that come from? That's just something that somebody took into the hospital? Well, yeah, my mum obviously thinks about a Barbie doll and bought this racing car, but I don't know. <laughs> but um, I think Miles got the Barbie doll when he was born. But um, that's not fair. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there are suspicions, and um, and that's been it. So my father was a very keen motor racing enthusiast. Yeah. Where we lived, just behind us was a, a small hill mountain. Um, it was the Dundraw TT circuit. So my dad used to buy like MG rapiers and Sunbeam Talbots and all sorts, and go up and park up and walk across the fields to the Herpen there right. and watch the likes of Fangio, Mike Hawthorne, Peter Collins, uh, all raced around uh, Dundrod and that's where he got the, the bug for nobody else in the family. Mm. He was from a family of, of 10 brothers and sisters. We all had different interests in life and that was my dad. So that's how I started and then he went down to Kirkson, which is our local track back uh, home in Ulster. And um, I think motor racing for him was just an excuse for him to get away for a weekend. He'd go out on a Saturday morning after work, mm. shut down to the circuit, get his car scrutinized, put some competition numbers on it, <laughs> tape up the headlights, and go out and so-called just take part. But the real interest for him was in this marquee uh, that was put up at the race weekends, and that was the bar, you know. <laughs> and while he was in the bar, I would take the keys for his car and go around, I was only about nine or ten, yeah. and just do laps and laps and laps. Uh, around the circuit and that's basically where the the nucleus of this, this all started I love that so just to kind of paint that picture a bit more so you've got weekend events where you're going to the circuit it's also probably worth noting as well that this is at a period of time where there's some political conflict going on in Northern Ireland isn't so, there so. Um, so the the kind of weekend track activity that must have been quite a nice escape you know to, to get away from what was happening day to day to this little world of well, well, for me, it was just like a big, big fairground, you know. Um, yeah. but there was a thing that the Kirkland called, a Kirkland circuit was called the Kirkland Cubs, uh-huh. which meant that parents who were involved in the racing could put their kids into this club, like a nursery school type thing, mm. and we had to go around and draw pictures of cars and all the rest. And then I, and then I progressed into the, doing the lab charts the commentator guy called Alan Tindall Plum in the control tower. So, you know, you got more and more involved and my dad got more involved and then he had this um, silly idea that when I turned of age that he would buy uh, a racing car, an old uh, Crossley 32F by four-year-old 
and we'd go racing as, as best friends, you know, and, mm-hmm. and that's what he did. And we did a, an interview for our local TV company at the time, he was only about 16, and uh, and the guy was stirred facing the camera, and he said, most young boys for Christmas ask for a electric set or remote controlled cars, and then, meow, came past me in the car, but Martin Donnelly got the real thing. Wow. And <laughs> you know, that was it. <laughs> Those cars back then were very expensive. You could buy them for about a thousand, two thousand pounds back in the in the sort of in the forties. In the forties, yeah, that's what it was. Okay, how are you getting home? <laughs> <laughs> um, I I do like that, and uh, yeah, I am aware of a, a brilliant story that you kind of gave a hint to there about you know, your your dad finishing some uh, some time on the circuit, then heading into the the beer tent. Mm. Um, there are the keys to the car. Mm. Now, was he aware that you were getting in the Very car? Very much so, yeah. Oh, good, good. Yeah, but yeah, at this stage also, he wasn't probably fully compensamentous, you know? Right. And uh, it got to the stage that, I can tell you now, but I'm going back 40-odd years ago. It was Kirkerson, Marquis, watch the car pats in case you stood in them. Then him and his mates, who used to race up the Arch Peninsula, which is a coast road between Flint Walls. yeah. Cooper S minis, uh, Capri three liters. He had a sunbeam rapier, and they race up this large peninsula over the limit. <laughs> and the next place you go to was the Mermaid in Kirk Cobbin. They had a little, little room at the back with a snug door, and I had to stay out in the car in the pavement. And I find one day, as I bored, I got a, a head gasket, right? Right. So as you do, as you're curious, you start pulling the head casket apart with all these layers of aluminium, and I cut myself, and I started to sort of uh, bleed quite badly. So I cut my arms in blood, and all my arms, and all, all over my face. Thing I walk in there, and he'd say, "Oh my jeez, me and Joseph, we got to leave, got to get out of here." And uh, <laughs> we're in there, and he's there with his ten mates. And his name was Miss McKeown, I remember it rightly. He said, Miss McKeown, take him upstairs, wash him up, give him some orange juice and some crisps and put him back in the car. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then went from there to a restaurant bar in Grey Abbey called The Wildfire and they sponsored me after a while. And that was just the whole day out, you know. Sometimes we didn't get home into somebody else's house for another party afterwards. So we went out on a Saturday morning and we got home sort of Sunday afternoon. Wow. You know. I think it was just an excuse to get in some, have some beer, like some people do. <laughs> he says, picking up a Guinness mm. from the table. <laughs> yeah, for the avoidance of doubt, anyone that is listening, Martin is from Ireland, just in case anyone was <laughs> Oh, wondering. is that the accent? Yeah. Ah. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, the accent doesn't keep it away. <laughs> I, I do like that. So at the point that you then started, there must have been a moment where perhaps you and Dad and maybe a few others realised, oh, actually... Martin Jr. is quite good at this and we should probably throw a bit more time and attention at it. Was Did that happen? You, can you remember a time where that sort of conversation happened? Well, or, I think or was it at just... the end of the first year, because we raced in Kirkuson in Northern Ireland yeah. and then we raced in Southern Ireland at a place called Mandela Park. So yeah. it was two different entities. Like this year, it's like it's Euro, one side Euro, one side still Sterling. Uh, but our friends were very much Protestant. So mm. as I said... You go racing with them on a weekend, yeah. And there was never ever any animosity, a bit of slag and a bit of oh, you feeling this and that, all sure. the rest of it. But never, always good friends. But then during the week in Belfast, mm. you know, we were barricaded in against these people between the Falls Road and Shackle Road. And for a nine-year-old, eleven-year-old, it's hard to comprehend mm. why you can't be with these people 
to socialise or go and shop in their shops or rest. And, and it's a confusing part of the time. But thankfully for me, my parents made the, the decision because where we lived, we had a lot of um, um, what's somebody looking for tourism. Yeah, and they didn't. And a lot of young guys coming out of primary school were getting enrolled in the junior IRA. Mm. So they sent me off down south to the Free State to Dundalk, because uh, at the time, about six or seven of our, of our porter cabins were built up on uh, on brick because right. the, the school was very small. Mm-hmm. And we could see IRA snipers fully camouflaged up, wow. shimmy across under the under the, the porter cabin, and the teachers would say. Kids under your desk, head and hands. It was rehearsed. Wow. And this guy would hear him underneath us get himself gathered together with this pack of ammunition. Mm. And he wasn't fussed. Any armoured patrol or police patrol in their armoured car on our painted jeeps would come past. they go pop, pop, pop. Wow. And they couldn't ref- return far because a porter came and built a balsa wind, more or less. And then he got out and run into the housing estate and he would get sheltered there. They, so they said, Get this boy out of here, down to the south, to Dundalk. I went to boarding school for seven years with the Irish priest, the Morris priest in Dundalk. So I don't know which was worse. <laughs> six years of the junior IRA, or six years with the Irish priests. <laughs> <laughs> As we all know, because well, of, of those years. And dormitories were 60 boys in, a, in a one big massive room mm. from 15 to 18 years old. So you learned pretty quickly to, um, go, to go to sleep quickly. Wow. So I'm guessing from either side then, from the kind of either you're dodging bullets, so to speak, mm. or dodging priests. Well, dodge, <laughs> you know, you're dodging, <laughs> dodging more bullets more than anything back in the day. Yeah. yeah. Um, so cars became the escape, I'm guessing. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that, was. Was the, yeah. that was the solstice. It was like a, a weekend's bit of fun. We got I got to know quite a few of the drivers, Patrick McGarry and uh, George Windham, who then became a good personal sponsor of mine. Um and at the end of that first year, which was 81, I did my first four races under age of, at the age of 16. But that's a different story. And uh, it's just say I must look very mature for my age. And, <laughs> uh, <laughs> and I got voted Driver of the Year by the Northern Irish Press, Morning Press, and Driver of the Year in the Southern Irish Press. So that was quite good in a four-year-old car against modern-day cars at the time. Uh, which then led to the 1982 season, where as the Van Diemen factory over in Norfolk, who ran people like Ayrton Senna at that at that time, um, gave me a free car, an RF81 Van Diemen, which was a year old for the 82 season, belonging to the factory, yeah. and Scholar Engines gave me free engines for the for the year. So all of a sudden, that uh, financial outlay. You know, that wasn't a burden to my father. Mm. So we could do a bit more testing, a few more uh, new sets of tyres, and uh, we were on the road. All of a sudden, so, people were starting to notice and talk about me. So this is Formula 3? Formula 4. Formula 4. The, 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 the first rung on the ladder. Fantastic. Mm. So you had a, how many years? Two years of doing that. Yeah. Came to England, did the Formula 4 Festival. Yeah. And back then, the festival was the big thing to win. It was... Um, I think we had over 200 cars, all, all like different manufacturers. You had PRS, Hawk, Van Diemen, Reynard, Crosley, Mondial, and they all had works teams and works drivers. You know, you're competing against the best. Yeah. And I think that year in the final of the first five finished 11th. Wow. So here we were, a little Peggy team, a car <laughs> shooter coming across Marland, 
and uh, we, we didn't do didn't do so bad. But this is the, right. This is typical Martin. Okay, this is really <laughs> typical Martin Donnelly underplaying <laughs> things like that. For bet for a bit of context, Formula Ford Festival back. What year are we talking now? Eighty two. Eighty two was massive, wasn't Huge. it? It yeah. was absolutely enormous. If you won that, you got the attention of perhaps the F three teams and some F four teams. It was a big. It was a, it was the Blue Ribbon event, I win. Yeah, yeah. Two hundred. Bear in mind, two hundred people, two hundred cars mm-hmm. turning up, plus drivers, teams, etc. events. Big thing, mm-hmm. and you could turn up to that thing, and not even turn a wheel, right? Yeah. And you could not make it through to the rounds you want to do, and you just kept pack up and go home. Yeah. Because there were so many entrants. Mm. That's the difference now. You know, there was a glut of cars and drivers ready to do that. Racing isn't like that now, is it? Well, in fact, in 82, Senna then, not people realise, but Senna at the time was married to a young lady from Brazil. Uh-huh. And she didn't like the fact, she didn't like the English weather, mm. it was cold and damp, didn't like the fact she had to wash her own clothes, cook for herself, I heard it was by racing, blah, blah, blah. So they went back after the end of the season where he won the British and European Championship in 81. He'd done it again in 82. Um, uh, he won, so Roth was trying to get him to come back from Brazil to do the festival, and he wouldn't come back. He said, "That's it. I'm finished. More than me is done because my wife doesn't like it." And he got another uh, Irish driver, a guy called Tommy Byrne, who we, as the Donnelly family, brought to England in '76 with his old uh, PRS chassis, and we told him pack it up, put it in the truck, and we'll come back. He said, "No, I'm staying." Got friendly with the Furman family. Angie was from Kildare, mm-hmm. outside Dublin. He got a works drive, did the festival, won it. Then got the F3 drive, which was the TV meaning of Thruxton, did well in that. And went on for a full-time F3 drive, got into F1 and then went to America. So the festival launched him, wow. you know, yeah. and uh, that was uh, the importance of it back in the day. Yeah. Unfortunately, it's been a little bit diluted these days because there's so sort of many different junior formulas now. Of course, yeah. And it's not so much the... Um, there's the opportunity out there. Yeah, the, the opportunity route has changed entirely, hasn't it, in the terms of there are some incredibly talented drivers out mm. there who aren't going to get a look in because they don't have the family backing, the financial backing, somebody that's willing to kind of give them the right opportunity. So, yeah, it is a completely different world. So then talk me through, in your in your world, how that then progressed. You went into Formula 3000 and that ultimately ended in you getting a phone call and an opportunity to discuss F1. Well, let's let's go back a bit before that. Mm. Obviously, by doing well in Ireland, I got a new sponsor called, called Frank Nolan, uh, who basically, there was three men that were responsible for me getting the F1. My father, mm-hmm. who got me started, and he wasn't a, very, he wasn't a rich man, mm. a hard-working man. But this guy, Frank, came along from, from Dublin, who had money to spend and wanted to take a young kid over to England and compete against the works teams. Mm-hmm. So we did a deal with Frank. We bought a new car, an RF83 from Van Diemen. Came to England when we weren't racing in Ireland. Uh, we won some of the European races against the works teams and in England. We had a race begin at Downton Park weekend. The English round was on the Saturday and the European round was on the Sunday and I won both races. Wow. So all of a sudden we had this pikey... Um, <laughs> Bedford, Luton, 
uh, furniture removal van that was, that was our transporter against these Brilliant. 40 footers and, and Frank so they interviewed Frank on the, on the podium and said I said wait till we start taking it seriously you know and all that kind of <laughs> and that got me to the attention of Frank of, to Rolf and then Rolf and Frank did a deal during the winter I went then to university King's University in Belfast to do mechanical engineering I was there for about six weeks met my tutors got my books and next thing I know I'm on the boat going to England to race free for Van Diemen in the 84 season wow. as a works driver. And then after that, I won the BBC Grandstand series and mm-hmm. uh, won some European and obviously won uh, in England. And that brought me to the attention of the F3 teams in 1986. Wow. So I'm trying to get into the mindset of uh, late teenage years mm-hmm. at this point. At what time did you start to think? Like, was there a, was there a moment in your childhood from even just the stealing dad's car keys on a Sunday whilst he's in the beer tent to think, do you know what? I'm potentially going to get myself one never, day into never a racing car. Really? Because I just I don't know. I just don't. You just don't believe in yourself. Mm. When you got to F three, in my first year of racing, I finished the third in the championship, won four races against people like um, Mauricio Sala and Andy Walsh who were there for the second year. You know, you get a little bit of um you start to come out of your shell a little bit. I was very I was very shy. I blame the priest for that because the drink was the devil alcohol was the devil's drink and women were just bad news. Not uh, much has changed. <laughs> yeah, it's got a point in certain and, <laughs> and you know, even when I was in F three, you know, teammates with Dimmer Hill in eighty seven and eighty eight and we were going well. You you, you just um uh, riding the wave because mm. without Selnet and their backing I wouldn't have got into the next year and then because I was winning races in 88 that brought me to the attention of people like Eddie Jordan and of course. and I did well in the Marble Test the year before that was quickest I quickest uh, by almost nearly a second then Stephen Modner who did a time on new tyres so I thought I'll get this drive didn't get it went to Alessi and, and to a German guy I can remember uh, but you know you just keep the door open you put your foot there you wedge it open mm. I got the drive with Eddie Jordan he wanted me to pay £30,000 for the last five races of 88 I told him I had the money I'd go to because frankly that stage I died of a massive coronary huh. 13th of April 1986 right. same day I got married in 1991 um, and when the Brands Hatch uh, team to, to Johnny Herbert did well, we won the race. That's when Johnny had his big accent mm. and uh, did his, his feet and legs in. Second race was the weekend after that, which was Birmingham Super Prix, for second there. So we did the last five races and I've had two wins, two seconds of Poland DNF. And that all of a sudden gets you to attention because the international, um, big, big time. And I then became my pimp. So he showed me the teams in, in um, Japan and Group C with Richard Lloyd mm. did drives with Derek Bell so all of a sudden he was getting his money back in and four months down the road instead of me paying Eddie Jordan money he was then wanting me to sign for him in 89 and pay me 50k Wow! and sell him paying big money so all of a sudden you're selling it you got sell on your arm a per sponsor you got Campbell who sponsored the Lotus F1 team of course yeah. you then got association with them and then things think well if you keep your nose clean get your results in the F3000 I was doing some testing for the Lotus, shaking down the cars prior to going to, say, Brazil or wherever, mm-hmm. make sure you didn't crash the cars, but did a professional job. 
you, uh, the door started to open and the international press would have known me. So all of a sudden, you know, the trophy's there. It was up to me not to try and drop it. Wow. And that's exactly w- what happened. And, go, you know, let, when you look back at as well, when you look at that period of time at what the cars were, mm-hmm. you know, one, how difficult they were to pedal. Physically. Physically hard to drive. Mm-hmm. Still fast, even by today's standards, you know, physically hard to drive. And then, you know, you mentioned Birmingham Super Prix there as, a, mm. as an example. And that must have been terrifying. You know, driving a car like that around, uh, we, we, we use the term, the term circuit <laughs> very, very loosely. Yeah. But just tell us, what's that like? It was a massively bumpy circuit. We had to lift the right out of the car so much. I'll tell you about it was, David Hunt who was Jameson's brother. Uh-huh. He was there doing, doing the race as well for another team. And he lost it at the end of the back straight and hit the outside curb. The outside curb used it as a launch pad, whereby he missed the tyre barrier 10 feet back and the armorical barrier and went through a brick brick building and got stuck in the building halfway up about six feet in the air and they had to get a crane to see the car out of the wall Thankfully, he was okay, but it was just... I mean, you could not see down the streets. You, you could not focus because it was just so bad and so stiff. Incredible. But that's how it was. It wasn't, yeah. it wasn't just my car. Everybody's car was like that. And you just had to learn very quickly to adapt to that. I love the idea of that. I mean, there'll be a lot of people listening that will be very aware of the Birmingham Super Prix and aware that there was, once upon a time, on the on the roads the driving roads of Birmingham a circuit that a couple of times a year would be have roads closed and it was turned into a racetrack and that was the case for quite some time but I love hearing these accounts from drivers that race it because everybody says the same thing everyone says you know you at one week you're you're there at Donington you're at Alton Park you've been driving a circuit and then the next weekend you're driving over manhole covers you're avoiding curb stones lamp posts on a on a like it's just absolutely unthinkable in this day and age isn't it it's It'd be like bonkers. going into you know, central birmingham or central london putting out some traffic cones and going oh just just watch that apex there because that is a manhole cover and there's a telephone box there and yeah it's a it's a little wonder why that came to we used to race that Phoenix Park, biggest park is Europe's biggest public park. And the main street had ditches each side of it. There was to, to stop the cattle and the deer <laughs> going, going onto the track. And they had gas lampposts that were operational at night time, wow. proper gas ones. And they put uh, mini skips out on the post of corners. And that was the marshal's posts and surrounded the mini skips uh, with straw bales. God. And we had trees left, right, and centre, and that's what we raced on Formula Ford, Twilier, and Formula Atlantics around the Phoenix Park with live animals and live <laughs> cast posts. Yeah. Do you know what? But by stark contrast, my experience at Silverstone GP last year was nothing like that. <laughs> <laughs> How many live animals did you have to dodge? Uh, do you know what? Only in the paddock. Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, yeah, I mean, we talk about it. it was another world, another mm, era, but it really different. was. It was another world. It, it you was... wouldn't get today because the insurance company wouldn't. No, of course, wouldn't back in now. And now we've lost, unfortunately, for two thousand twenty-three in Northern Ireland, mm. all the motorbike races that are on the public roads have all now been canned because right. I think they said for one event, something like the Northwest Two Hundred, 
for insurance going to cost them like four hundred thousand pounds. Wow. And the promoters can afford that. So all road racing now, they know that for the Dunlops, mm. very famous name um, back home. You know, it's finished. It'd be lucky if they could get an entry now for the Isle of Man because it'd be oversubscribed. The Driven Chat Podcast in association with Paramex Digital. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com slash people today. Yeah, well, that's it. And that's an event as well. I mean, this is something we've talked about many times on, on this podcast. Too. You know, Isle of Man, we've, we've spoken to a few different riders, and it's still one of these events that it will be heartbreaking the year the year that comes where they say do you know what we can't do this anymore but mm-hmm. there's still a part of me every single year that thinks how is this possible mm-hmm. how is this getting insured I don't think the the government if you want to say that the right word of element want to stop it because no. it brings so much revenue Surely. of course tourism yeah, yeah. into the into the little smile and for for that sort of month of, of, of whatever it is August time I think it is yeah but you know it's sad times yeah. times move on health and safety are sort of behind it and the insurance costs to do these things these days, it's just gone mad. Mm, yeah. Mm. Bonkers. Right. Well, I guess then let's edge a little bit further towards the the big one, mm-hmm. the F1 career. That's clearly, by this point now in Formula 3000, you're clearly doing well. You're holding pace. You're faster than a lot of big names that mm-hmm. have been doing this for a little bit longer who, with a big following. At what point did you start to think, okay, right, now I can see the next step being F1, and at what point did it then start to materialise? Well, I won Macau in 1987, so I became F3 world champion. Mm-hmm. And the phone call started out when I got back. Peter Collins from Benetton mm-hmm. wanted me to go out and do a test with him in Estro, which I did, um, in the turbo cars, in the fog again, seems to me... Th- Thing in my life in, in uh, motorsport. Um, okay, set a reasonable impression there. Uh, F3000 DJ, some F1 tests. I suppose the reality check came one day at Snedderton in mm-hmm. Norfolk, which is my local track, because I came and drove for Rolf. And I was very fortunate I didn't have to move around for European countries like most of the guys came from Brazil mm. or from Australia or from Germany. Had to do that. The Hazel Chapman showed up at uh, Snedder on a really blustery, miserable day, and I thought, "Why is Hazel Chapman here? I mean, she's got a lovely home back by twenty miles away. She yeah. doesn't need to be here today." And I think it was Peter Moore, more or less said to her, "You got to come down today." And because 
Sned then was a fast circuit. Yes, it been, was. It's been yeah. modified. I remember from the bomb hole to Richie's, the first corner, it was flat. Yeah. Ryan Corum through what we call like the Russell chicane and up there. And it was like, I remember going up the pit straight. And you see all the dust and soil being blown off the, the fields. Mm. But, you know, you knew that you know, obviously the stars weren't giving you maximum grip because they're picking all the, the yeah. sediment on the ground. But I made a big effort then to, to, to push hard because I thought she's not here for no reason. Mm. And I then did a test at Silverstone. It's called the Goodyear Tire Test. They brought three cars up there. It was a four-day test. There was PK, Nakajima and myself. And uh, the team had... Um, we're using Judd engines, but they got Tickford over in Milton Keynes to, to develop a five-valve cylinder head. Right. Supposed to give a bit, bit more power. So Picky was a main man at the time, but they, at the end of each day, we got a set of these qualifying tyres, which were like super glue. To put into context, you do 60 laps a day around the Civil Grand Prix track. You come down the first corner, which was cops, mm-hmm. hardened brakes, down the fifth, down the fourth, in bit of a power slide up to the big high exit curb, which controlled the slide. Fifth gear of the curb, sixth gear up to up to Beckett's. You put a set of Q, put a set of Q tires on, mm-hmm. and you can't go out too quick because these tires would blister very very quickly. And you come down to cops. The bear in mind, you're doing the same thing. Sixty laps. It was brakes, fifth gear, flat, mm-hmm. and to adjust your head to convince yourself that this car will now. Do what I wouldn't do before. Yeah. God, I got gone gone through there quicker. And I remember teaching my engineer, the guy at the time, a guy called Mike Coughlin, who went on to work for Benetton. Mm-hmm. Benetton or Ferrari? We had the McLaren Ferrari spike. Just, 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 just for the benefit of the audience here. <laughs> Martin's looking at me for answers. Yeah, and so I'm I. looking at and, and so is so is John and I'm looking at, back at them both blindly. He got involved in the McLaren Ferrari spike thing. Um by talking about how to preload the front spring so that you keep the car stiff mm-hmm. in error. Because the thing back then was just keep the car straight for the arrow. Yeah. It wasn't moving about. But they were under a certain amount of braking pressure the spring that operated as a soft spring, mm. which we had learned in 3000. Mm-hmm. And every time he went stiffer, 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 I went quicker, quicker, quicker. Needless to say that Piggy qualified quite well at Silverstone and finished fourth in the race. Mm-hmm. He got all that credit, but it was down to your man here mm. that set the cars off for him. And I remember the front page of the other sport magazine, which is a big motorsport magazine in this country, and it said, is Donnelly the next Mansell? Because I think oh. overall it was sixth quickest with a Judd engine. So that's when the penny dropped that I could, if the powers that be, Duncan Lee from Camel and Eddie Jordan, my manager then at the time, could open some doors for me and, and they did. Wow. PK went off to Benetton because I think he could see that Lotus then, which I didn't realise, were in financial trouble. Mm-hmm. He went off there and we, and myself and Warwick joined them um, Lotus F1, which, of course, Warwick then, back in the day, had signed for Lotus, but Senna said no. He didn't want to race against Warwick because he thought he was too much of a threat. Little Irishman here took him on and, and uh, held me on against him. And so just, you know, as a, you know, I suppose as a driver as well, you know, that I, I often think about and look back at those cars of that generation and look at them with, a, you know distinct level of fear almost you know mm. because of the stories and you know they were basically engines strapped to 
you know, not much else. Mm. So the first time jumping into a car like that, that you knew was capable of something like that, was there a transition at all? Or was it just, was it a case of, I've just got to get in and put on a show? That's your job. You know, you get in and do the best you can and perform the best you can. Because in a Grand Prix, you know, you have to be physically fit. Because once your head starts to drop or you get tired, that's when mistakes happen. Mm -hmm. But yet the team knows that lap by lap the car's getting lighter because you're using burned up fuel, so your lap times need to be quicker. Mm. So you're starting with a full tank of fuel. There wasn't any re- refueling back in my day. And uh, you're getting towards the end of a race, and you've got to keep pushing on, you know, mm. even on a test day, because if the team makes mechanical change to, to the car to see if it's, if it's quicker or slower, if by four o'clock you're physically tired, mm. they can't tell it was slower because it was actually a, a wrong change, or because you physically couldn't couldn't be short enough, so you know there was high expectations back then. Absolutely, and like you say, Miles. There, I mean, again, thinking about the cars that you drive now, thinking about things like Pragas with these rapid was it naught point naught four of a second per gear change on the paddles. You've got ABS. There's bits of traction that step in. Mm. Thinking back to the cars that you're driving, Martin, manual gearbox, hand comes off the wheel to change the gear. We had two buttons on the steering wheel. Yeah. We had one for water and one to talk to the team. You know, there was no ABS, there's no power steering, there's no traction control. It was just down to you. Yeah. Yeah. It's it, it's almost mind boggling to think that, that was I had a guy enormous, called interrupt guy yeah. called Tom Ryan, Irish guy, had massive hands on hands the size of shovels. And when I there was no there was no modern airlines that we have today that do the shot holes. Mm. It was commercial lines. And I used to get back into Heathrow and I phoned Tom before I got my baggage because he lived in Kings Lynn. I said, look, Tom, I'll be home be at 12, 2 o'clock in the morning and he'd be at the house to give me a full body massage hmm. uh, that night because the next day all your joints and your would all swell because the battering you got in the car, yeah. it was like going into 12, 10 rounds with Mike Tyson. Yeah. And if you didn't get that scene there and then, the next day you couldn't move, you know. And you might be having to do another travel to another test day at the end of that week. Yeah. So Tom was a good man and, and uh, seemed to me with my aches and pains. I and think that's it. it, it as as you, you know, to your point, John, like you say, the physicality of the cars, Completely. that's the bit I think that blows my mind. Because even though the cars that, you know, by modern standards, of course, we're driving cars that are possibly quicker over a lap. But the job of driving the car is easier. Mm. You know, that's, yes, okay, mm. quite physical to drive, blah, blah, blah. But nothing on that level. Absolutely mm. nothing on that level. And, you know, down to brass tacks, safety as well. Mm. You know, the cars were not particularly safe back then. Well, this was well known for build it light, build it, build it, build it light, build it quick. Mm-hmm. But lightness would often, would often fail. And there were certain drivers, I won't mention any names, who refused to sign for Colin Chapman because he knew the cars were frail, they broke often. Wow. And back in the day, if you ever watched the Jackie Stewart story, mm. he lost a lot of friends. They travelled together, there was no flights. Yeah. We all travelled in groups together to these European destinations and they all stayed in the same hotels and became friends. Mm. Fat wives and kids and all that. Carry on. And every other weekend, they were losing their friends. And, um, and you know, I suppose to a certain extent, drivers back then were to a certain extent, expendable, you know. Mm. But you did sign. I did sign because it was F1. <laughs> yes. You know, it's, it's, it's not every, every day you get the opportunity to 
to Sanford F1 team and I was racing F3000 at, at uh, Le Mans at the time and at, when the race finished or qualifying where it was finished there was a plane there was a, an airport over it twin planes Chestnut airplane when it take me across the Alps to Monza where we announced myself and work for, for the team those things just don't happen to a little boy from Belfast no quite know? And did you, I mean, was there ever that conflict of you know, knowing perhaps that there are other drivers that are saying, I'm not driving in a, in a Chapman Lotus because perhaps that's too dangerous. Was there any conflict at all of that seems dangerous versus, but it's F1 and they need to do it. Was there any overlap at all? Or did you no. go, no, I'm just going to no. go for it. You, nobody, nobody forced you to sign a contract. Nobody forced yeah. you. It was your call. The only thing the team insists upon, and all teams insist upon, is you have to have yourself personally insured for a, a certain minimum. I did myself for 200k because I wasn't earning big money then. Mm. Gerard Berger, we used the same company, insured myself for 19 million because that's what he's going to earn in three years while at McLaren. Wow. But you know, when I had my accident in the 20th of September 1990, I had four contracts, I only did 12 races. Mm. I have four contracts from F1 teams offering sensible money, Arrows, Turrell, Eddie Jordan, and Lewis that morning took up the option of my contract after 12 races for 5.6 million for two years extension. Wow. Now, we're going back 33 years ago. Yeah. 5.6 million in today's relation was big money back then. Huge. So after 12 races, you know, I was I was a sought after commodity, if you like. Yeah. You know? Absolutely. Now, one of the interesting things that I find fascinating about this era, um, your era of F1, so late 80s, early 90s, is it was still at a time where the drivers were still very much responsible for going out and hustling their way through sponsors. I did a, I had a fantastic conversation not too long ago with Perry McCarthy, who Good explained mine, you know, the dog. stories. Yeah, yeah, the stories of working the oil rigs to mm. build up a bit of cash, high earning job, high risk, high earning, to then go back get back into race cars that when he's not testing a race car he's knocking on the door of huge engineering companies going hi i'm perry and i race cars i also work on an oil rig uh, i'm doing f1 next year do you fancy sponsoring me and that was just the norm you know you think about f1 these days and there is a 30 40 50 t- member team solely dedicated to sponsorship and selling everything down to the index finger on the glove that might be seen at changing down a gear mm. going into a particular corner on a particular circuit and that has a price tag of course it does Back in your day, you were you were personally responsible for also trying to drum up a bit of money as well, weren't you? Well, I have to say, thankfully, fortuitously, from a very early age, I was getting paid to to do motorsport. I got yeah. paid in FF two thousand by Frank Bradley, who was the manufacturer of Swift cars, Swift racing cars. Then selling that back to me personally, and Frank Nolan. So we were getting paid myself, teammate at Demon Hill. We can pay ten grand, company car, free mobile phone, and a thousand pound for one five hundred pound for a second, and we got sacked. That's a different story. <laughs> and then into EJ, we was paying me big money, and then F one, I did yeah, deal with with with, with uh, Lewis. They were paying me sensible money back then, so I was very very fortunate to be right place, right time. Yeah. Whereas Perry, you know, um, he went about it a different way. Uh, and other Irish guys like David Candy and Derek Daly, mm. who became big names. In fact, David Candy went to the same boarding school as me in Dundalk. They went to the salt mines in South Africa wow. and worked the winter months in the salt mines <laughs> to pay for the race in the summer of the following year. 
Wow. You know? So people did what they had to do to raise the funds to to feed this this drug that runs through our fans. There's a <laughs> dreading rush that we get. Um, because realistically, I think might as well agree, will agree, nothing else can replace it. No, uh, annoyingly so, <laughs> frustratingly so, but that's uh, that's a whole separate thing. You're absolutely right. You know, I think, you know, the people that listen to this are, you know, they're into cars. You're into cars, John. Yeah. You're a massive car fan. We love everything about it. Racing is something. It's almost a different language. I think when you when you move into that circle of the people that share that same it's passion. A drug. It's a drug. It is something that is so bloody difficult to replicate in anything else. Um, and difficult to replicate now, partic- mm-hmm. in particular. You know, we, the, we joke about it. We rip, we rip Martin all the time as a group, you know, to say, you know, you guys were warriors back then, but you were. You know, we look back on that period of time with great fondness, don't we? You know, because... It, you know, dare we say sanitised these well, days, dare we say it. But we look back, I know I certainly look back on guys of your era before and after around that period and just look back and go, how on earth did you do that? Mm. How on earth did you do that? You find a way, you have to find a way because if you don't do it, somebody else will do it, you know? Yeah. Uh, and you know, there was times that early on in the days you knocked doors for personal sponsors for your race team kit you then have a needed budget for tires, so I've got another sponsor to buy tires. Um, and the more money I could bring in, the less my father had to put his hand in his pocket. Mm, and then could we could afford to do some race at, at the end of the year at the festival, or we went to Aintree a couple of times, we went to Thruxton once. Um, so I, 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 I got lucky. I got lucky. There are a lot of people of, of the same ilk you know, and results talk. Mm. And everybody likes to, to know a winner. And if you're not winning, then this phone call stop and, you know, your back's off knocking doors again. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a cruel world. It is, absolutely, absolutely. But, you know, not without credit. Mm. Obviously, it, it all happened and it all worked out and it got to where you got to for a reason because the, the talent, the skill, the ability was there, the personality was there, which is, again, a, a factor that is so rarely... It's creeping its way back in now. I'd say the past few years of Formula One, you know, looking at things like Netflix's Drive to Survive, suddenly the personality of the drivers has become a, a crucial thing again as, as part of an interest point to but the it's sport. It's a massive audience from America because yeah. F1's now owned by an American company. Of course, yeah. One of the biggest uh, sports networks yeah. uh, in the world. Yeah. Zach Brown... He's got one of the biggest commercial companies in the world. Yeah. And he can, he can tap into, you know, he's American, he can tap into the American market. And you look at other sponsors he's now got on his F1 car. Mm. He's now into IRL. He's got an F1 team there. He's now bought the Mercedes from the E-team. Mm. And he's very well financially supported uh, from these American sponsors, you know. Yeah. And we now, I think every... Uh, event this year in F1, the really so-called F1 Paddock Club is totally sold out. Yeah. You can't get any get any more tickets, and people like we call him Gorgeous George, good <laughs> Norfolk friend of mine from Kings Lynn. Mm. Uh, you got Lando Norris, you've got uh, Leclerc, you've got um, Ricky Otto. Brings in a whole new dynamic of young people who are involved in social media, whereas the likes of Jackie Stewart and 
and Graham Hill and Jimmy Clark didn't have had social social media. No. Uh, and the older guys now, I think that people like uh, Alonso and and Fettel mm. were forced into social media because yeah. that's what the sponsors and people mm. want them to do. But it's a whole new way of life now with this dynamic in the world where you have internets, mm. Wi-Fi and people and companies just jump on that now. Yeah, and it can it can work both ways, can't it? The 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 personality front of driving, you know, being that face of the team. I am one of the two drivers of the team, so therefore everything I do is being watched. And there was a period of time, especially yeah, I know Lewis Hamilton got a lot of stick for a lot of time of being like almost not interesting enough. He was like this robotic figure, but it was likely because somebody's you know whispering in his ear just be careful what you say you don't want to upset the sponsors you don't want to say the wrong thing in the wrong place so the, the easier option is just to become robotic and just kind of dull well, it down again yeah. well he went to live in america with nicole yeah and he built a nice house with own recording studio because in america he was an f1 back then mm. wasn't anywhere near as big as it is That's now right. yeah. you know yeah. Uh, and a lot of people go to, to Los Angeles because they walk down the street uh, not to get dressed up in costumes. But you walk down the King's Road in London, your personality, you're in the, you're in the headlines. Yeah, yeah. You, if you, success brings, what's I'm looking for here, Miles, you know. Stop looking at me for answers. You, you <laughs> lose that animosity of, of being your own self. Yeah. And that's the price you pay. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So bring us back. Just for a second, you've you're now F three world champion, mm-hmm. which is something that again you gloss over. Again, yeah, not, it's very nonchalant. You know, yeah, yeah you yeah, know, yeah. F three world champion. Yeah, it was easy. Yeah, um, you're starting to raise a few eyebrows in that circle, mm. and now there's a looming contract from Formula One. Mm. How does that look for you? Very exciting. Um... You you know it's not the best team in the world, competitive team in the world, but it's Chapman. You know Chapman, and we go to to I work for at Lotus at the at the factory there. And we have a test track, and one of the things I point out to our customers who are on the factory tour, this bit of tarmac you're now crossing, walking across, people like Jimmy Clark, mm. Graham Hill, Ayrton Senna, Nigel Mansell. Martin Donnelly all passed here <laughs> at 160 miles per hour because it was a test track. We had to get the security to come out to stop the factory workers leaving their cars because the car park was the other side. And when the car got past, they could come across, you know. Wow. And uh, <laughs> you, wouldn't, you wouldn't do that these days. Um, uh, you know, and to be associated with, with Chapman family and the success, you know, it's an honour and a privilege. Mm. Um, and something that in life you just turn, turn around and say, no, I'm not going to do that this year. Yeah, yeah, and I had a very competitive teammate who was revered by Ayrton Senna. Um, and you go out there and do the best job you can. Yeah, and as I said, after twelve races, I had a, I had four contracts, so I was doing something right. And that morning, of the accident, I signed a contract for um, five point six million mm-hmm. um, pounds. I had a free shopping account at Hugo Boss <laughs> in Stuttgart. <laughs> Free cars from Lotus Cars. You get access to a cheap car from Mercedes. Women and girls were um, 
my shyness obviously was working well. Um, and uh, you're just riding this massive wave. And so you, glad he said wave then, aren't you? <laughs> Good Lord. And life just doesn't get any better because yeah. in that paddock, in that everyone paddock where all the trucks are, you're put in this cocoon, if that's the right word, mm. Of away from the real the real world. Of course. You yeah. ask any war any F one driver now, the price of a stamp or the price mm. of a litre of milk, they couldn't tell you because that's not what they do. Their PAs do that for them yeah, or yeah. they got people to do that for them. And it's a very privileged place to be in life because only are twenty six of them or now twenty of them yeah. uh, 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 that get the drive and um you know, and they never lost that sense of reality mm. and I realised that it was precious and you do what you have to do to try and make sure you don't lose it yeah, you know, be course. it by being successful on the track staying close to your sponsors and having to be nice to the media yeah. and at certain times you don't, you don't want to be nice to them of course yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely so I guess we should probably build up then to that famous day and at this point you've as you say you've just signed a, a massive contract you're Sharing the circuit with names such as Alan Prost, Ernst Senna, Mansell, to name but a few. Um, you're looking ahead now at this point. You've gone through your career from you know, mucking about with cars on a Sunday with your dad's set of keys. Mm-hmm. Um, Formula 3000, you realise you're quite good at that. Formula Ford, you realise you're quite good at that. You're now in F1, you realise quite good at this as well. Handy enough. Yeah, handy enough. Yeah, Absolutely. At what point are you starting to think, okay, this could be... I've done the Formula 3000 world champion. I reckon I could do this with F1 as well. Is that now in your head at this point? Well, I knew I had a major challenge in Derek Warwick, mm-hmm. who was X years ago world hot world champion. Mm. And, you know, he didn't throw fools lightly. Um, I tried to learn from him during our briefings. Um but I knew if in my head, if I put the blinkers on and didn't look what was happening on that side of the garage, I was stuck with my team and my engineer. You know, Derek Warwick, I remember saying his two few tracks was Monaco and Silverstone. Mm-hmm. Who I qualified him? Me. In the Class B uh, car with the lower, not the best engine, not the best tyres, not the best setup. And uh, we took the challenge to him. He's still a very good personal friend these days. We have a rat pack due every every uh, December. We ten of us meet up, um, and it's a it's a good day out. Um, so you put your head in, into your work. You, you work hard in your training. You work hard in your fitness. And if you're doing the job right, as you did in F three and F three thousand, then doors should open for you. And Lewis signed me on that 5.6 million contract, but I made sure there was options in there. There's a buyout option, mm-hmm. like Alessi. Alessi did well with Terrell. He signed for Williams for the 1992, I think, season. Mm-hmm. And along came Ferrari, knocked the door. Him being French Sicilian, mm-hmm. Italian in, in blood runs through his veins. Yeah, Which Italian doesn't want to drive for Ferrari? Yeah. So Ferrari bought him out of his Williams contract. And went to Ferrari. Lo and behold, Williams then got Nigel back and became world champion that year in 92. Sean mm. went to Ferrari, won, won, won race. If Sean had stayed where he was and driven for Williams and won races and became world champion, his stock value would have been 10 times as much as what Ferrari paid him for in, in, in 92 season. So, you know, you never know what's around the corner. 
um, and I think Sean was very much said you he regrets that decision, but at that time he felt it was the right thing to do. Yeah, yeah. So now you're in your F1 car, mm-hmm. well and truly in your F1 career. You've got a massive sponsor on the back of the car, Camel, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. iconic car. And let's now get to that day, the day that things didn't quite map out the way that they were. I'm guessing it started off quite strong. Well, I think the hard car I wanted. <laughs> you know what? That's where it all begins, isn't it? Yeah. When you're queuing up and you don't get the higher car, car you want. No. That's when you know it's going to be a bad day. Because the weekend before was the Portuguese Grand Prix. Uh-huh. And we had friends out there coming out to Spain, confess my that live in Norfolk, a guy called Ed and Jenny Devlin. And Ed used to run a calf called Ed's Calf on the 11, just about coming from Van Diemen. Mm-hmm. All the guys that used to race Van Diemen, works drivers, would go to Ed's Calf to have their food fed. Right. Uh, I and Senna, Roberto Moreno, um, all the guys, all there's so many works teams that drivers, I can't even remember them. And I brought it with me to the prison test out in Imla. Mm-hmm. It's about March time. And it was it was cool because we sent Ed out on the, the big long straight then before they put chickens in yeah. with a speak on. And he came back and he was purple. He was absolutely frozen. And he was like, oh, you sent me out there, you bunch of this, bunch of that, bunch of others. And uh, <laughs> we went along, we walked along the, the, the pit lane, just looking into the garages as you walked along, just uh-huh. all your experience for Ed. Yeah. I was starting to get get uh, my feet under the table. And we got to the McLaren garage. And uh, Lee was at the back of the garage doing some interviews with some journalists at the time mm. in his overalls. And he clocked me and Ed. And he pushed the journalist aside, ran out and grabbed hold of Ed and gave Ed a... And, now, he hasn't seen Ed since 83 when he was doing Formula 3 then. Oh, wow. Okay. So he gave Ed a big bear hug and he said, that, what are you doing here? He said, have you brought my bacon sandwich? And every morning, <laughs> I heard him went to Ed's cab and a bacon sandwich, right? And I just broke it. Ed just... Big lad just broke down in tears. Wow. You know? And uh, that's one of the nice memories from my heart and, and, it's, and, it's, and it's time, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and then we, we, we got on with, with uh, a lot of material thought there. So, so this happens quite a lot. Um, <laughs> this happens quite a lot. Just, uh, you know, dear listener, Martin. Uh, <laughs> I've got a bag in the head, you know. He has, yeah, he has, he has many a story to tell. <laughs> and they often go on on many a tangent. Well, that's okay. Um, yeah. So let's just bring you back. So you've tested at, you've been at Portugal yes. the week before. Yeah. We're now Correct. heading over our, to Jerez. Mm. And we thought, well, we had friends staying out in Spain, mm-hmm. Ed and Jenny. So there's no point in flying back to England to come back out again on a Wednesday or Thursday. So we went and met them and we had a bit of a short break but there's uh, on the East Coast where we agreed to build this villa because we had a bit, bit of spur. Uh, um, what's what you guys use? Um, we've got re- recreational guys, exposable, exposable. Go on. Uh, ever, ever, yeah, anyway, we, 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 oh, got, disposable income. That's the one I'm looking uh-huh. for. Disposable well, income. I, I, I don't have any of that. You're confusing them. <laughs> Neither of us. Neither does John. No, 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 no. So we've got the... And they came out to Spain. They were there and I got sunburned. I went down to Spain and... Irish. The only things I remember from that weekend, we went 10-pin bowling <laughs> with, with, with Ed and Jenny and Jenny couldn't, for whatever reason, bend her right knee to glide the ball down the... What do you call that thing you threw the, the ball alley. down? The bowling alley. The bowling alley. Oh, yeah, yeah. So she threw the ball... Right, I went clunk, clunk, and that was quite funny. Yeah. Another thing I remember was 
We went to, must be a Spanish bar, stroke restaurant, mm-hmm. and all these Parmahams were strung up behind, behind the bar. Yeah. Remember that? Um, that's it. And we got a big, big purple sitting shooting brake with a lot of baggage. Okay. Um, which is another car I asked for, but we got that with the air suspension. Yeah. Uh, and that was that was the yoke we had. So we had to drive up <laughs> from, um, went through from Alicante to, uh, to, was the airport outside? Seville. Yeah. Got the hard car and then drove up the circuit. And I don't remember, we were out with Camelot 2, my Vespa scooters. So my seven down went round in one, and you went, and Jay went round in the other one. And she went, this is the second gear, this is the third gear, this is a good piece. Of, and I said, this is a good place to watch, because you can see three or four corners. Mm. And they're there for qualifying. They're a good friend, Roberto Moreno, because he fed him from Fontaine. These were also, Roberto hadn't pre-qualified for, the rate, for, for, for qualifying. And was there at that corner, wound off and had the accent. Okay. And so you had this lovely week-long build-up to yeah, practice, yeah, yeah, like, yeah. almost like a little holiday. Yeah, and signed that big contract, and yeah. things things were going great. Life was good, you know, who am I type thing. And they were signed, they were bringing a guy called Mega Hackton as my teammate. He got off light. You heard of him, John? I have heard yeah, of him. Yeah, I think yeah. he's... Yeah. I think he's... Um, did okay. I think he did all right. Yeah. Is he, is he finish? Yeah, he did finish, yeah. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> so anyway, we went out and... The, the car, the suspension collapsed. The Driven Chat Podcast in association with Paramex Digital. So is that what it is? Because I think th- there was still, yeah, there's many accounts of this accident and we'll get to the details of, of exactly what, you know, what happened after the incident itself. But essentially, at first, or f- certainly for a long time, nobody really knew what had gone wrong, did they? No. Nope. Because there nope. was no footage of the physical... The, the hard part was that Derek Warwick, you know, they left the decision for Derek, Derek if you want to carry on driving this. They, they, knew, they knew that the car had um, had uh, disintegrated and had gone off by itself. I'm going to show you a picture. Look, mm. there's a picture I'm showing you now. Look at the smoke and the dust and the grass. Okay. It's an easy flat out corner. Yeah. And I've gone, I've gone straight on in that corner. So something suspension component Look, has failed. The, the, the damper neck on turned. the front left, front left damper neck broke off. Right. Uh, for other reasons, because the bell crank was loose in, in, on the in the in the carbon, um, and they left it to him to decide if he's going to race the next day. And they couldn't explain to him what it broke, but they're going to give him, they give him their word that they would leave nothing unturned and go through his car. But he had a spare car as well mm-hmm. to try and find out what happened. And Derek, being Derek, did it. You know, yeah. went out and raced with this in the back of his mind. Um, and over, then over over time they they then sussed out what had actually happened. Okay, but let's get back to the crash. Yeah. So the the kind of the headline figures that I made some notes of here. I don't know where I've made them because I've seemed to have made a thousand notes and can't find any of them. Um, but one hundred and seventy six miles an hour. Mm-hmm. The car has gone into the barrier. Mm-hmm. You have been thrown fifteen meters away from the car. Whilst still in your seat, I think mm. that I think that's quite conservative. But yeah, right. it must be a good forty, I reckon. Thereabouts. Yeah. Okay, oh, I was very bouncy. <laughs> um, it's estimated that the impact in which you would have been torn from the car mm. and thrown to the circuit would have been something around forty-three 
43 G, mm-hmm. which is that's blackout territory for comfortably, easily. Internal organs aren't supposed to do that sort of thing. That's not what we're designed to do. Um, and there is, I'm sure, you know, people will have seen the images. If not, have a look at our social feeds today when this episode's gone out because we'll share some of the images there. There is a very still-looking Martin Donnelly on a circuit, still in his seat, with a leg pointing in the direction that it definitely shouldn't be pointing Mike in. Mike a very lucky man. <laughs> and for all intents and purposes, every single person standing at the side of that circuit, including your friends there, mm-hmm. everybody watching on a television screen, everybody watching from the paddock, they're looking at a dead racing mm. driver, aren't they? Well... You have to imagine that it'd be hard for anybody uh, under normal circumstances to, to, to survive that. Yeah. But I think in reality, um, I got saved by going with the, the inertia mm. of the accident. I got thrown out with it. I didn't come to a stop. Yeah. Not like Ayrton Senate. I heard him his accident at Imla. Mm. He hit the concrete wall and stopped. And that actually broke his neck. Yeah. So never mind what everybody reads and believes the thing that killed Ayrton was the impact that broke his neck secondly the push rod came into his head and into his head but that didn't kill him so that's why modern day drivers now will use what we call a hands device so it stops your neck going so far forward the the elasticity that uh, saves your life Um, and that's what happened to me so the fact I went with inertia to a certain extent saved me Mm. What didn't save me was the fact that, the, as you said, the body organs went through 43G. And Sid knew in his mind that, okay, there was a lot of blood. The, 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 the left femur was out through the side of the leg. Mm. He cut my overalls off. Senna came out from the garage. We stood there watching Sid go through uh, all his various functions. He put two tubes up my nose, cut my helmet off me. Put two tubes up my nose to clear my airway, mm. and then I got my teeth and got my tongue out of my throat. So I swapped my tongue. That's the reason why I wasn't breathing. Mm-hmm. Got me stabilised, and then flew me to the civil hospital. And I went back in this car, miraculously, because the next day was Saturday. Was also qualified. Said the fastest lap ever. He did a press conference. I'm not any questions from the floor, but explained the press why he did, and the reason why he did it. Mm. Went to see Sid and asked him why he did the things he uh, did, and then got in his hire car and drove to the civil hospital where I was. Wow. And a good friend of mine, a guy called Mark Gallagher, was outside the uh, is it called the ICU intensive yeah, care, yeah, intensive watching care through the window, and Senna came. And Senna stood there watching me, and he said to Mark, "If the Donnelly family need any financial assistance, regards our ambulances back home." Wow or uh, medical care, or whatever else is, just call me, sit, and I'll organise it for him. You know? wow. And that was something pretty special. I mean, myself and I heard him back in 81, 82, when he was at Norfolk, and I came across. Mm. We had about between 25, 30 meals together in the Doric restaurant in Attleborough. Mm-hmm. Uh, we knew each other sort of personally, but not sending each other Christmas cards. Mm-hmm. And the fact he came to uh, Seville, was a good sort of 50-minute drive from the circuit, means a lot to me. You Absolutely. Know? Yeah. Uh, but Sid knew that my body went into shock and it was important to get me out of Seville mm. back into his hospital which was the Royal London Hospital in Whitechapel yeah. in London so he gave me one of these injections that freezes every muscle mm-hmm. in your body so you, you, you don't move into an ambulance land at Gatwick they're chopped they're 
he came from the hospital, picked me up, took me to the hospital on the roof of the hospital on Tuesday, and the next day, Wednesday, exactly what it said, all my interlocking stopped working. Wow. So I was on respirator for seven weeks. I was on kidney dialysis for six weeks every day for three hours, getting an oil change. Um, tubes to my throat was hence my why my accent and my my voice has changed, and got the stage where I said it said it was actually from uh, Northumberland before. <laughs> he developed this Irish accent afterwards. And Sid said, my mother's very much um, a Catholic woman, uh-huh. and she's got the, the the church in the in the hospital every day. Mm. And he said, Mark, he said, he said, you know, he said, I don't expect Martin to survive tonight, so wow. please make peace with your God. Yeah. And she got the hospital chaplain to come up and give me the last rites. Wow. Uh, long story short, here I am now talking to you. Yeah. You know, you don't get rid of me that easily. No, no, clearly. And believe me, we've tried. <laughs> In fact, only last week, some someone bowled him over in John Lewis, <laughs> of all places. And I'm looking it's at him. Of, hell of an accident. Hell of an accident it was. And I'm looking at him on the floor going, oh, God, this is it. <laughs> this is the one. Not that, here. This is the not one now, not like this. This is the one that finally took him. They didn't even get an offer on the TVs. You don't know who this man is. He can't die on the floor of a John Lewis. That's just an OG television. Um, wow. Yeah, no, absolutely. We, we, we make light of it now. Of mm. course we do. But um, the fact is it was, I mean, if you go back, if you, anyone that's watching this, I'm sure will now be, mm. you know, furiously typing into Google, Martin Donnelly crash. Yes. Um, Martin does a very good job of of telling the story quickly and efficiently. Mm. But there were moments in that incident that are genuinely breathtaking. Mm. You don't see, in, the, in any footage that exists, you don't see the crash. No. There are still images of you... Uh, when the crash is happening and obviously when the crash is finished. But what you see in the footage at the time is people stood around you. Marshals. Marshals mm. stood around you, not having a clue what they're dealing with here. Well, no, I mean, almost understandably, because mm-hmm. again, they're looking at... You say right, your leg was on, on fractured circuit. in... Yeah. Well, both legs were broken, one of them in multiple places. You're motionless... Your almost your face down, arms bending the wrong way. There's a bit of the footage I've seen where there's a marshal almost in vain checking for a pulse. For a pulse like, yeah. uh, and they're looking at each other, just saying, "What? What's the point? What do we do you next? Know, you know, he can't. They be weren't. Alive. They weren't trained for that. No, they no. weren't trained. They trained for flags and uh, and safety cars and all that sort of stuff. But the actual face reality of somebody lying in front of them, mm. a competitor who's on the on the threshold of life and death. Yeah. They're not trained for that. No. I think things since then have not changed quite significantly. But, yeah. I mean, I think every 300 metres now, because of my accent, there's mm. now a doctor in a marshal's post that can do tracheoptomies. Wow. So when Mickey Hackner has an accident in Adelaide, yeah. through this crash test dummy, the guy keeps did his apples, his apples cord there mm. yeah, and yeah. put a tube in and kept him going. Wow. Also, the ear... Buds, we had big um, brass speakers and helmets. Uh-huh. Perfect my eardrum. They're all gone. So we got now. Yeah. So I think it's important that if everybody's accident or misfortune, we have to learn from that. Mm-hmm. And as I said, with Ayrton Senna's accident, we now have hands devices. Yeah. And you try to cover all the bases of the worst scenarios, and you think you have got them covered. But every night again, 
something will pop up, will pop up and just pop up. How did that happen? Yeah. So you hadn't, you hadn't got it covered. Absolutely. But I have to say, thankfully, uh, I've got Miles Lacey as my new manager, which is, you know, <laughs> I think things were going from bad to worse. Uh, and I'm here today talking about um, my life. And there's nobody appreciates more than me mm. how lucky I was. I got three great kids. I bought them birthday presents at Palmer Sport because all very much in motorsport. <laughs> and uh, that's, that's a day that I will cherish and have great, have great fun at. Amazing. Is there anything at all that you can remember from the crash? Or was no. it just a, you were out in the car no. and then suddenly... So wh- where, where did you wake up then? Did you wake up in London? In the Royal London. Wow. Um, Sid, obviously a busy man, and obviously he carried on going to the Grand Prix. Mm. But he had a team of doctors, junior doctors, that worked under him, and they had to do various tests on me uh, each day. And one of the tests was they had to come in and take um, a sample of blood. Mm-hmm. And when I came out of my coma, I wasn't talking. But my eyes would follow you okay. around the, the room. And this doctor stuck a syringe into my um, veins on my wrist. Mm. And it hurt a lot. Okay. And I actually grabbed this doctor by the throat and said, pardon me, but politely, that bleep, bleep, bleep <laughs> hurts, right? Wow. And Sid had great joy in telling the driver's briefing. I think he was Adelaide, the grumpy. You'd be glad to know, he says... That your fellow driver, Mr. Donnelly, woke up and spoke his first words. I told one of my junior doctors to more or less F off. <laughs> <laughs> and they had a, a, massive, a, massive, a massive cheer, you know. Incredible. That's some uh, class. Yeah. And if you look back at my documentary art country at Birmingham yeah. in 89, my voice was so much softer mm. than it is now because the tubes affected my vocal cords. Mm. I was just on the right cusp of being a, a right old snob. And uh, what happened? Well, this car came in the corner and hit me up. <laughs> you know, my kids and my now daughter. Now listen to it. Now my daughter goes, Dad, Dad, was that really you? Because the accent's so much different. <laughs> yeah. right? No, exactly. And you see that in, again, some of the footage that you see post, mm. post-accident post and in your recovery process. Mm. Uh, the first thing I observe is the weight that you've lost. Mm. Um and the voice as well. The voice has significantly changed. Well, when I left the Royal London Hospital, I left on Valentine's Day, February 14th, 1991, mm-hmm. because in my head, there was a guy called Lee Dungle, and he was the guy that treated Nicky Lauda mm-hmm. for his fiery accident at the Newburgh Yes. And had him back in the car within six weeks. Right. And he also treated Gar Berger, who had a big accident, at Imla in the far. Yeah. And he was back. Well, I thought, if he can get those guys fixed... Bit of broken bone, he can do me. I'll be yeah. back in F1 in two or three months, yeah. you know. And that was your thought train, as far that as you were my concerned. Thought, that was it. You're up and about. Now it's because time Because I'm back watching in. the Grand Prix. Yeah. I'm watching that Julian Bailey's in, in my, my seat. Uh, Marcus Alba, Marcus, Marcus, German guy, come to me. German Marcus. Uh, you know, Devin Marcus. And uh, Pedro Lamy and Mary, Mary works. Martin, please hurry up, come back because we want you back in the paddock. And that was a big wow. inspiration for me. And I did physiotherapy, hydrotherapy every day, mm-hmm. seven hours a day, Sundays right through to Monday, wow. every day. And um, I couldn't walk when I got there. I was 53 kilos in body weight. Wow. And filled with MRSA. Hospital infection. Gosh. So I say, if the hospital food doesn't kill you, the hospital infection will do. So, <laughs> so you think it's a safe place, but get out. And uh, eventually, I learned that I had to learn how to walk again. Yeah. Uh, and back in the day, when I was a, a driver in F one, I would think that I had a lot more what we call a déjà vu. Mm. 
a lot more than normal because your mind as a driver is, is active the whole time. But now since the accident, I don't have any more dreams, mm-hmm. no more deja, deja vu. So when my kids say, oh, I had a really strange dream last night, I said, well, embrace that because I haven't got any dreams wow. for the last 33 years. Wow. That's all been taken away from me. So I go to bed tonight, I'll switch this light off, like my brain, mm-hmm. I sleep, the alarm goes off, and switch back on again. Nothing happens. Wow. Scary, Miles. It's rather scary, isn't it? <laughs> well, at least you're not having any nightmares about Miles. No, definitely That's not. saving no, no, grace. No, no, no. That, I always like to bring the positives in. Indeed. You know, that would be unfortunate for all involved. <laughs> that would um, be, be a nightmare. Because I, speaking from experience, have a lot of nightmares about Miles. <laughs> <laughs> and it is not pleasant. Um, um, no, exactly right. Yeah, exactly right. I, I think it's fascinating to listen to, um, to, listen to the psychology behind yeah. where your head's at. You know, when you have... You have every intention of getting back in a Formula One car, mm. right? Yeah, big time. I believed it, 100%. Yeah. And then I had an ordinary break in my left femur. And I don't know if people know this, but when you bend your leg, your femur slides up and down on the bone. Right. It's like it's like a, a rail. Mm. And because I was in traction and I burst all this blood came through the, the yes, leg, it's very dangerous, you couldn't yeah. bend the leg to keep it mobile. Yeah. So it actually... You know, they bonded or glued my femur to my, the muscle was bond to my femur. Mm-hmm. And then after some months, I had a, what they call a tracheotomy, mm-hmm. to go in and slice your leg off like Parmaham. We got up to 90 degrees, and then the skin across my knee ruptured and tore. Wow. Back in the plaster, they're petrified of you getting another hospital infection. And then for my birthday, I think about two years after that, I treated myself to another Um <laughs> Uh, quad plastic of a guy I used to race against Matt Bartlett in, in the Lotus Championship he got me he got me up to 120 degrees mm. but again then the uh, skin burst wow. and after a while I think well you know maybe a man upstairs trying to tell me something you yeah. know you survived this accident mm. you've got uh, you're still alive you've still got a great family let it go yeah and uh, the finally in the cost the net finally in the coffin was hurt in his death at Imbra on the 1st of May 1994 mm. I thought well you know, if he's gone and I'm still here, let that go. And I still race mm. for social enjoyment. Yeah. Uh, it keeps the adrenaline going. It's not high octane like F1. Mm. But you get a couple of good uh, clubby drivers who can take you take the challenge to you. Yeah. It's as competitive as F1 because you've got to go out and try and beat these guys, you know, because yep. yep. they see you as Martin Donnelly XF1, even though that was like 20 years ago. So I get enjoyment from that. And uh, I'm still doing it to, to, to this day. Absolutely. And obviously, driver coaching through DonnyTrackAcademy.com. Go on the website, you'll see it there. Absolutely shameless. Plug. No, I like it. <laughs> shameless. Smooth. Make the most very opportunity. I told you yourself, speak forever. <laughs> uh, and um, obviously, now the new documentary that came out on F1 TV this morning. Um, that's on there. It's very, very, wants to, it's, it's very short, 21 minutes. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's good. It's well. T- well, well done. It is incredible. Yeah. Uh, yes, of course, the day that we're recording this, which is, looking at my watch, the 16th of February, 2023, we have seen a yeah, new documentary go live. What is the title of said documentary? Uh, it's called Martin Donnelly, Life on the Edge. Mm. Life on the Edge. So give that, a little, uh, give that a little Google. It'll come up. It's well worth a watch because it shows the details of that crash. Um, shows most of what we talked about there, but the accident. It does on the ground yeah. and marshals. But I think there's something quite harrowing when you see that footage and see just 
it, for me, the thing that got me was the expression of the faces of the marshals mm. who just don't know what what's happening. They have no idea. What do you do next? Not because yeah. they don't care, but it's because they're just like, what on earth is... How do we prepare for this? Yeah. Well, it's pretty scary. It's harrowing stuff, yeah. It's great. Um, yeah, give it a watch. It's good storytelling as well. You know, it's good storytelling. Mm. You, uh, it talks you, you know, as you have today, you know, kind of brought us through that journey, as it were, from a young kid growing up in the Troubles to mm. suddenly... You're on the F one. You're on the F one grid in a in a camel sponsored Lotus F one car. Another thing I should say that we haven't touched on. I became an F one driver steward, mm-hmm. so I put your turn gamekeeper. And <laughs> on the Thursday of the Grand Prix, I get to drive these fantastic safety cars. I think what they call them. Mm-hmm. And a little boy from West Belfast, <laughs> her run the tracks of say Korea, or where else ever I went to Australia but the whole circuit just for me marshals waving their flags practicing and you have to go you know waking up because these things just don't happen in life mm. and you've got to embrace those moments and cherish those moments um, for life yeah yeah completely no I think it's fantastic yeah I mean following the crash you went you did go on and you as you say continued racing and continued competing do you think you know, it's perhaps an impossible question, but if you had a time machine, you could change something. Do you think you would go back and change anything, or do you, yeah, do you still resent it now to this day that perhaps the F one career didn't go further? Or I would still... lie. There, there is, there is a, an, under, an underlying bitterness. Yeah. Because my friends, Coltard, Damon Hill, Irvine, Herbert, all went on to become very successful millionaires. Mm. Um, and what gives me balance in my head is the fact that people like Ayrton aren't mm-hmm. here you know he, he had no kids to leave his fortune to mm-hmm. he had charities he left it to uh, and that gives me no reason to feel bitter you know yeah. I love my kids love my, my, my daughter Charlotte um, I'm still involved in the sport that I love I still can race around her around tracks and do driver coaching and that's where I'm at in life. Mm. And I haven't got six figures in the bank account. Uh, but we're, we're working on that. Hopefully this documentary will. <laughs> <laughs> this time next year. Watch out for the book, guys. The book will be out for, for Christmas. <laughs> that's, that'll be worth to know. Yeah. Yeah. Good, but I mean, I just said, I'm sitting here amongst good friends. Mm. Uh, is, that, is that what you think this is? What's that? Good friends. Well, I consider you a good friend. That's friends. awkward. <laughs> good I'm friends. joking, I'm joking. Um, but you're not getting a Christmas present, and I think the next one of drinks is done to you. <laughs> and um, you know, life, life's good. You know, yeah. It's not perfect, but it's good. And it's not a physical job, mm. but maybe we had track day on Monday, mm-hmm. uh, again, on the circuit, and we had a nice situation where I gave it off spinning 125 miles an hour. Wow. And you think to yourself... I hope this car doesn't dig in the grass and flip because it doesn't pay enough, you know? <laughs> and worryingly so, you were in a Lotus as well. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, all, no. all, I have to say, all driver-induced, of course. Yeah, of course. Of course, yes. yeah. yeah. It can't, be, can't have been down to your instruction. Must have been yeah. lap one. No, I... I, I it was I, lost I, in translation. <laughs> I think um, it's it's astonishing to see... You know, even even now when we're just, you know, I, you and I have known, only, yeah. known each other for a couple of years and we get on well. Um, you have a fantastic way about you and a fantastic ability to... I try to hide it through humour. Yeah, get, as we all I do. Get, yeah. I, get, I get 
embarrassed and I get uncomfortable, I suppose yeah. the word. Uh-huh. Like the show, the show, and John Lewis. I made a joke of that when I stood up and the guy was all over me like a rush. And that's my way, I suppose, of dealing with situations yeah. behind humour. But you are quite funny, especially with a couple of Guinness in you. But we're, you know, even uh, what I love about th- the way you still operate is that you have you've got a fantastic network around you of people and friends mm. that know you well, would do anything for you, know the story, of course. But even w- yesterday, we just popped over to Silverstone, didn't we? We 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 wandered in, and you point you pointed up at the silk cut Jaguar on the on the billboard yes. on the music. Oh yeah, I re- and he just casually looks across and goes. Yeah, I raced that at Daytona some years ago, and I'm like, who is this guy? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yes, Sam, qualifying Le Mans, 1988, 243 miles an hour down a public road yeah. in a forest in the dark. Yeah. That gets your attention. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. Incredible. But there you go. Boys, it's been a pleasure. This has been it's great. Been great. Um, and I hope that uh, everybody's able to understand my rogue uh, <laughs> voice. Well, I'd say that we'd put subtitles on it, but sadly, this is an audio-only format. It is an audio-only format, but um, yeah, there's always a way. There is always a way, but no, I don't think that's needed at all. Honestly, I think this has been absolutely fantastic. Um, give that. Give go on. Let's have another plug. Give your um, your driving academy, driving school. Yeah, Academy dot com. I coach privately. Um, it's I also do after dinner, dinner talk. So there's lots of good um, credits on there from various companies I've done over the years. And the history of my racing, and it's all in colour, not black and white. <laughs> <laughs> and it's uh, it's a good read. And I thoroughly recommend it myself. Fantastic. Well, we'll we'll include some links uh, in the little description bio wherever you're listening to this. Have a scroll down, and you'll see uh, some links to uh, various other bits of paraphernalia and um, ways that you yourself can engage with Martin and book him for one of those very, I'm sure, reasonably priced after dinner speeches. Yeah. Speech no price. Manager. No price. Exceeded by manager, <laughs> but I'll say no price too high or too little. <laughs> Fantastic. This has been this has been fantastic. I've no doubt that our paths will cross again with various events um, in the not too distant future. So, so it'd be great to good. Uh, catch up and see more of you, Miles. Thank you very much for um, standing in as my yes. co-host for today. Not at all. Um, you I'm just evade your fee, Miles. Uh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. The, the, fee, the fee has been two pints of morality. <laughs> Fantastic. I'll um I'll let you get back on with your evening. Thank, Thank you very so much. much. Thank you, John, for the opportunity to speak about my specialised subject, yeah. which is me. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. Yeah. You are very good at that. Yeah. Very, nobody knows you better than myself. <laughs> Some things I've forgotten. I lost about six months of my life and in the hospital, but apart from that, it's okay. Yeah. We, we glossed over that. No, thank you, uh, Martin, for. Spending a bit of time mm, with us. Pleasure. To yeah. talk with us, uh, pair of donuts. And uh, thanks for having me on as a, as a host. My and pleasure. normal service will be resumed. Normal service, whatever normal is now, uh, normal service will be resumed next week with another guest. Who knows who it is? Don't know. I haven't recorded it yet, but they won't be as good as this, I'm sure. There we go. Thanks for listening. Good job. Thank soon. you. The Driven Chat Podcast in association with Paramex Digital. You dream it, we bring it to life. Find out more at drivenchat.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? 
They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Oh, wow. You've made it to the end. The very end. And it's John Markar here again, reminding you that this podcast, the Driven Chat podcast, has now run its course and has come to an end. To find the new format, search the Driven podcast in your preferred podcast app or head on over to the website driven.site to find some quick and easy links through to the new episodes in the new formats on your preferred apps. Thanks. Bye.